This is Rocks to Roots, a podcast presented by the Spokane Conservation District. This podcast series is intended to share education and resources related to land management, conservation practices, and celebrate some of the great stewards of our land here in our region. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. This is another episode of the Rocks to Roots podcast, produced by the Spokane Conservation District. I'm your host, Hillary, and with me is my co-host, Dwayne. Good afternoon, Hillary. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Dwayne, I want to wish you a happy National Farmers Day today. Mm. Today is Tuesday, November 12th, and recognizing all of our great farmers and producers in the area that keep me very well nourished and healthy. So thank you for all your hard work. Ah, thank you. So when five o'clock rolls around, make sure you lift one. <laughs> well, and speaking of farmers, I just want to um, let everybody know that our, the 2021 Farm and Food Symposium is right around the corner. That is a two-day event taking place November 5th and 6th at the Centennial Hotel in downtown Spokane. It is two days of in-person uh, resources and education where progressive farmers, ag industry professionals, and other conservation partners will gather together to gain a deeper understanding of the ecological practices and economic incentives of regenerative farming. Dwayne, I heard you're going to be there. Yeah, me and uh, the farm manager of Vets in the Farm, Mr. Grant Weber, will be putting on a class talking about small-scale production and um, how to get the most out of it. Awesome. Well, we are excited to have you guys as part of our lineup. And in addition to you guys, um, our keynote speaker is going to be Ray Archuleta. He is a soil health pioneer and has 30 years experience as a soil conservationist, a water quality specialist, and a conservation and agronomist with NRCS. So we are excited to welcome him. And in addition to Ray, attendees will have um, an opportunity to choose from several other different classes and workshops on a variety of subjects led by local leaders and professionals, including a variety of topics like soil health, vegetable production, nutrition, and conserving natural resources. So you can check out the full conference schedule and register today at SpokaneCD.org. And one other shout out I have to give is um, on season two of the podcast, we had Sean Alexander, the Northeast Area Extension Forester, on our podcast, and they have ventured out and they have started their own podcast. All right. Growing, growing, growing. Yes. So a shout out to Sean Alexander and the Northeast Area WSU Extension Forestry Group for launching their podcast, The Forest Over Story Podcast. So go ahead and look for that on all major podcast platforms as well. All right. Well, you ready to get in today's show? I think so. Let's do it. All right. Well, we are excited. We have a great show today. Today, we are sitting down with Chris Ostrander of the Spokane Food Policy Council. Thank you for being here, Chris. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've been listening to your podcast, and I think it's an excellent way to get a lot of really important information out to a broader audience. So 
really appreciate you doing this. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, we are excited to have you in the chair today and talking about Spokane Food Policy Council. Um, But first, to get started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you first became involved with the Spokane Food Policy Council? Okay. um, Well, uh, I've been around on the planet a little while. I just turned 64. I was born in New York State. I got interested in environmental issues early on in my teens, and I went away to a college in Maine called College of the Atlantic in the mid-80s, or the mid-70s, sorry, um, to study human ecology, and I stayed at that college for a couple of years, and um, it was a great experience, learned a lot. But I I dropped out, and, um, and I joined a Whole Foods Bakery Commune in Bar Harbor, Maine, around 1978 or 79. And, uh, you know, the college had introduced me to, uh, to, to some food consciousness that I didn't have when I started college. Um, the cooks at the college had been trained at the farm in Tennessee, which was one of the places that introduced tofu and natural vegetarian diet to North America at that time. And, and joining the bakery just reinforced a lot of what I learned about the food system and the importance of organic food and whole foods. And I, I kind of became an advocate already that time for organic farming, organic foods. Um, and, uh, and then a couple of years later, I ended up in California um, in 1982. I started to go to the University of California at Santa Cruz studying um, political science and environmental studies. And I lasted a couple of years at that university as well and um, dropped out and started to make tofu at a tofu shop in Santa Cruz, California. Did that for a year and a half. And then I joined a collective, a workers' collective that distributed organic produce uh, throughout Northern California. Um, And that was a really great job, best job I've ever had in terms of wages and benefits, I think, Um, and a really great learning experience to work with a a workers' collective. Um, But when the big produce houses took on the job of distributing organic produce in the state, our little collective went down pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I had created relationships with um, a bunch of farmers in the region because I had gone to their farms to pick up produce, and I just asked around for jobs, and I got two jobs in the summer of 1989 uh, doing farm work in Watsonville, California, and then north, north of, uh, of Santa Cruz at a, at a collective farm uh, for the last half of the growing season in 1989, <clears throat> where I decided that um, I was there with my partner and our son and her son, and we decided that we liked farming. Farming was a career that we felt a lot of just comfort with, and we also like the idea of the, of the collective farm or the communal farm. And so we searched and searched and searched and ended up in uh, 1990, we moved to Tolstoy Farm, which is about 35 miles west of Spokane, and it's, a, one of, it's the oldest still existent non-religious intentional communities in the United States. Um, and there was a farm there that I started uh, working on, and um, and eventually I started my own little micro farm at Tolstoy, and I farmed there for about twenty years, um, and uh, and 
During that time, I became even more of an advocate for sustainable ag, organic ag. Um, and I think I realized that there's been a long history of farmers who had to become their own advocates in order to create policies and practices that that serve their interests. You know, so I've always encouraged farmers to become politically active because uh, only through activism can you really, you know, create uh the situation that you want, the kind of viability that you want to have in a farming business and and the way that farm farming is perceived by the general public. Absolutely. So that's a long journey. <laughs> um, and and so while I was in Spokane in the uh, in the area, uh, in the mid-90s, I joined the board of directors of Tilth Producers, which um, used to be the statewide uh, organic Farmers Association, a chapter of Washington Tilth Association, it since has changed its name to Tilth Alliance. Um, and I also worked as staff for a project of Tilth Producers, which was called the, um, the Washington Sustainable Food and Farming Network. And that was an advocacy organization primarily. Um, and it was very effective uh, when we formed, WSU did not have a sustainable agriculture program or an organic program. Mm. And one of the main focuses of, uh, of the network was to force WSU's hand to take sustainable ag uh, seriously and, and incorporate it into its, uh, its curriculum. Um, and, and we successfully did that through some amazing grassroots organizing and some pretty heavy-handed legislative <laughs> tactics. <clears throat> you know, and nowadays, uh, years later, uh, you know, the organic ag program at WSU is one of the programs that they advertise um, worldwide, mm -hmm. uh, and, and yet they were dragged into it kicking and screaming <laughs> um, years ago. Y'all get a percentage of that now? Yeah. <laughs> percentage of the tuition, at least? That would be good. Some royalties, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so also in the, around 1998, uh, I tried to form a reform, a chapter <clears throat> of the Washington Tilth Association in Spokane called Spokane Tilth. And, um, we, for time, we had an office in the community building downtown and we were active. We brought speakers like Wes Jackson to, uh, to Spokane and we tried to engage the community in discussions about organic and sustainable agriculture. And, uh, and one of the things that occurred, of course, during this whole time was the terrorist attacks, attacks of 9-11, 2001. Um, and Spokane Tilth had already been in talks with other organizations around the region to try to form a Spokane Food Security Council. Mm -hmm. And we, we did meet. <clears throat> um, we had help from the Health Improvement Partnership, um, we met with a cross-section of groups, including Second Harvest, School District 81, the Spokane Farmers Market, Spokane Community Gardens, the Spokane Marketplace, Rural Roots, Neighborhood Action Program, WSU Extension, and others. Um, and we, we, we went for a grant to try to establish the Food Security Council for, with the USDA Community Food Security Program. And we didn't win the grant. And so our our attempt at a council kind of struggled from lack of funding and and sort of you know just disbanded mm -hmm. not too long after that. But it was a a good attempt and it brought consciousness of food security issues to 
people that hadn't heard about it before. Um, and then there was another attempt to do something similar um, that came out of the Spokane Regional Health District to create a food security council out of there. And that, that also kind of fizzled. But in 2013, the city council president, president at the time, Spokane, <clears throat> Ben Stuckert, organized uh, the Food Economy Conference um, again in 2013. And it was a very well-attended conference that brought the whole issue of food system policies and practices and issues to, to light, much, much higher profile in the community um, perception of issues in the community. It brought food issues to the forefront. And out of that grew an effort by, by Ben Stuckert to establish the Spokane Food Policy Council, which was done... Um, uh, you know, by by the council um, establishing the food policy council, and and at that time um, providing the council with a city staff person to coordinate it. Since that time, uh, we don't we we we've become more independent. We are now our own five hundred one c three nonprofit organization, and we we have uh, we don't have any city staff anymore. We have a a, a program coordinator that we hired ourselves. Um, and I, uh, I joined this Food Policy Council kind of late. At the time, in 2013 when it was formed, I was very busy trying to manage an educational farm in Cheney, and I didn't have time to, to, to join the council. I attended some of the first meetings, um, and I didn't join officially until 2014 when my life situation had sort of changed to the point where I had time to devote to that, and I've been with the council since then, and I'm currently the vice president. Awesome. Well, a long-standing history then with ag and food policies and um, farming on your own. Um, so, what are the main goals and the main objectives of the Spokane Food Policy Council? You know, our our website, which is um, SpokanFoodPolicy.org. Uh, is uh, our mission says on the website, it says, to advance policies and initiatives that foster a resilient food system in the Spokane area, one that is healthy and equitable for its citizens, economy, and environment. And we also have a vision statement that we're looking to create a thriving community that values and cultivates a viable, inclusive, and prosperous food system. So... um, Right now, uh, we have individuals and organizations represented on the council. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some of the organizations are Catholic Charities, Second Harvest, Rural Resources, uh, Spokane Regional Health District, WSU Spokane County Extension, Spokane Tribal Network. We also have uh, a representative from a farm and a representative from a, uh, a commercial meal delivery service. Um, and we're we're always uh, taking applications. If anybody's interested, our website has uh, an application. If you have the time and energy to devote to constructing and implementing and and, and advocating for food policy issues, um, in 2016, the Food Policy Council finished the Spokane Regional Food System Inventory, which was requested by the Spokane City Council. 
um, and it, it was adopted by the Spokane City Council in November of 2017. And that document is available on the Food Policy Council's website as well. Um, we also, the, the, the Spokane Food Policy Council also takes positions on local, state, and federal legislation and policy development and engages the community in encouraging grassroots activism supporting those positions, such as supporting um, the American uh, Rescue Plan Act money for the local, to use in the local food system, um, and asking Congress to include adequate funding for investments in climate-friendly agriculture as part of the budget reconciliation process. Um, so there's much planning for the future of the food system going on right now in the Spokane region. The Spokane Food Policy Council was asked by the city council to produce a Spokane Regional Food Action Plan, mm -hmm. which we are uh, in the final stages of developing that. Um, also, you know, there's a new, a new group, the Spokane Food Security Coalition, that is um, meeting and planning uh, also uh, for the future of uh, food system, uh, what the future food system is going to look like in the Spokane region. There's the Sustainability Action Subcommittee of the Spokane City Council that um, has included uh, a lot of food and agriculture um, issues in its draft sustainability action plan for the city of Spokane. Um, so there's a lot of people focused finally on the food system. Is mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a, an area of policy that often gets neglected. You know, um, we don't have anywhere in Spokane a sort of a you know, department of food. Um, neither the county nor the city really have any, any programs or, or agencies that are devoted specifically to you know, food policy issues or agriculture or food security. Um, so it's oftentimes a little bit difficult to get the community or the politicians to, to uh, take food system issues seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but that's one of the jobs of the council is to is to uh, educate the public about the importance of these issues to everyone. And so that brings up a good point. You say that these food policies are um, neglected a lot of the times. And do you think that it really is solely because there are no programs or more of that outreach from, you know, kind of city council or um, just city programs that focus on these? You know, I think it's just a societal... Uh, myopia, really, kind of like um, going through life with blinders on, <clears throat> we've kind of become a little bit too comfortable with the fact that, you know, we're going to open the refrigerator and there's going to be food there, or the, we go to the grocery store and the shelves aren't going to be bare. Um, but with the disruptions that we've seen in the food system as a result of the COVID pandemic, uh, we've really seen that our globalized, industrialized, centralized food system is somewhat fragile to this kind of disruption. And that has contributed to a heightened awareness of the food system among many people in the last couple of years. Um, before that, the, you know, it's just, it just seemed as though <clears throat> specific food-related issues were not 
the hottest topic on local um, political rulemaking or, or legislation ordinances, um, you know, every now and then things would happen. For instance, uh, years ago, the Spokane Food Policy Council worked with the city to adopt some ordinances having to do with raising uh, small livestock within city limits or selling produce that you've grown in within the city without a, a seller's permit. Um, uh, and, and all of these have contributed to... A, a, a great deal of growth in the just awareness of food system issues among the general population and, and policymakers, uh, but it hasn't always been that way. Mm-hmm. And so um, you mentioned that the Spokane Food Policy Council started in 2013. You've been there since 2014. What are some of the biggest changes, um, or if any, um, that you've seen over the years, now that we're in 2021, I know that we, I mean, obviously we had the pandemic and we've been in the height of COVID, but have there, what are some of the other big changes that you've seen in relation to food policy issues here in Spokane? Well, uh, and if any, say what, if any, (laughs) oh yeah, there have been over the years, um, you know, you know what, like I said, I used to farm uh, at Tolstoy farm and also in Cheney, but when I started farming in in 1990, at Tolstoy Farm, there wasn't a farmer's market in Spokane at all. I had to, to go to a farmer's market, I had to go all the way to Coeur d'Alene mm. to sell my stuff, which is, I'm glad I did because I met some really great farmers out there and gave me lots of good advice yeah. as I started out. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years later that, that there was the attempt to, to create a year-round public market along the lines of Pike Place in, in Spokane, the Spokane Marketplace, and it struggled for years, uh, and finally, the farmers who were trying to market there sort of gave up on the Spokane Marketplace and started the Spokane Farmers Market, 1998. And um, and it it has been going strong since then. But now there are, I don't know, almost a dozen farmers markets yeah. <laughs> in our region, starting from having none in 1990. So that's a big change, and that has created a lot of opportunities for small growers, for consumers to get better, you know, fresher produce. And and also the farmers markets have done an enormous amount of work to try to encourage low-income people to come and, and purchase fresh local produce from the farmers markets, and that's been a real change. I've also seen uh, every now and then there's a little spurt of activity among the grocers, the grocery chains and so forth in our region to promote local foods and to buy from local producers. Um, that has that happens every now and then. Restaurants have begun to buy from local producers a lot more than they did when I first started out farming in the area. You know, I think the the consciousness around food, healthy food, uh, and the and and an, a concern about how the food is produced has come uh, to be more, uh, you know, widely accepted among among people, um, we have now a food co-op in a food consumer co-op in Spokane that didn't exist before. It's going fairly well, and um, and some thriving natural food stores in the area. There's new ones coming coming online uh, all the time. So there's there has been a great change, and this so it's a it, this is a really great time to start to focus people's attention on on how we can make the food system even better in the future. Mm-hmm. Love that you got to watch it grow from 
almost nothing, like you're saying, to what it is today. Because I think a lot of times we take it for granted that we do have, uh, like you said, just that free access to food whenever you want to. You can drive down the corridor and just see all these different farms yeah. with wonderful produce. So right. It's a great point of view from never having it to having it with ease. It's changing so fast. Yeah. And you mentioned um, you mentioned the market garden law that uh, the farm, the Spokane Food Policy was a part of in, in getting uh, passed. Uh, right. That, that's, to, that's the ability to, to grow food in your backyard and sell it in your front, front yard. Without a permit, and you just do it, right? Yeah. Is that still ongoing? Oh, yeah. Okay, so yeah. it's all right. And also, you know, the ordinance that allowed people to have um, goats uh, and small livestock it, it, within the city limits was, was a big deal. The revised uh, animal law. Yeah. Yes. It's great. Those are things that we definitely needed to bring that uh, urban feel and that farm feel together and. Yeah, wonderful on y'all's part. You know, it has changed so much since I first started uh, marketing in Spokane because I, I would bring red leaf lettuce to the farmer's market, and people had never seen it before. Really? They didn't know what it was. They pointed to it, and they say, what's that? <laughs> because all they really were familiar with was the balls of iceberg lettuce you could mm-hmm. find in the grocery stores. So um, I don't think you have that problem in Spokane anymore. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's really funny. You run into a few, like kohlrabi. People still are like, what is kohlrabi? It looks like an alien fruit. I don't know if I want to eat this. And then they eat, they chop it up, they cook it, and... They come back for more. They come back for more, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I have to say, you did bring up... I I did love that point of how we really... Because I've grown up... lived in Spokane my whole life and not growing up going to farmer's markets. And that really hits you, you know, like my 11 year old nieces are getting to experience farmer's markets and go and touch and see foods that they aren't, you know, traditionally or normally exposed to when you just, you know, run the aisles of the grocery store. And so, yeah, what a fantastic change it is just for, you know, the youth, the younger generation to grow up, to touch the food, to learn more about growing the food and, so yeah, that's that's really cool. So I'm I'm curious um, if you would just tell us who um, Spokane Food Policy Council identifies as some of the key stakeholders in our local food system. Stakeholders, yes, I have that written down here because there's so many. <laughs> <You're right. clears throat> you know, I mean, first of all, the most important stakeholders in in a food system are the people that eat the food. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and they've often been ca- cons- called consumers in the past, and I don't really like that term because all I see is, um, is a planet being nibbled to nothing <laughs> by a bunch of consumers. Um, so I, I guess it's not the greatest term, but I like to use the term eater. Okay. Uh, and so we have eaters, and, and we have two kinds of eaters – in our region, we have food secure eaters and we have food insecure eaters. Mm-hmm. And food secure eaters are people that really never have to worry about whether or not they're going to be able to put food on the table for their families. And food insecure families are ones where that's not a given, that where, where there's considerations being made as to whether they're going to buy food or pay the rent or pay the utilities. Um, and we have quite a bit of food insecurity in Spokane. Mm-hmm. It's it's related to uh, to the fact that we have a lot of poverty in the in the region. Um, 
And also we have a situation where the, the quality of food that's available to people in, in their immediate neighborhoods is not as good as it could be. There's a lot of convenience stores and fast food um, and areas in the city where <clears throat> access to fresh uh, local produce and, and, and farm fresh foods are pretty much non-existent. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so uh, there's also, in terms of eaters, in terms of stakeholders, there are, when, when eaters organize, they can have quite a bit of an impact on the food system. So, um, uh, so there are organizations, there are uh, nonprofit organizations that, uh, that advocate for organic foods, for sustainable agriculture, and often these are consumer-driven. And like I said, they can have quite an impact when, uh, when they organize. So we got your eaters. You also have the producers and of food, local producers, and these include farmers, ranchers, food processors, cottage food producers, home gardeners, and community gardeners. Um, and so you've got those folks. You also have producer organizations, which are pretty important, like, for instance, Tilth Alliance for the Farmers, Farm Bureau, uh, Rural, sorry, Rural Roots is mm-hmm. an um, organization based in Moscow, Idaho, which, which advocates for sustainable agriculture throughout the, our region. Um, and producers have their own support Networks uh, having to do with, say, farm supply, seed, fertilizer, chemicals, uh, for hire services, equipment repair, and then there's technical support for producers like WSU Extension, the Conservation District, uh, um, Natural Resources Conservation Service, and private consultants. Um, Then you have the food distribution networks wholesale distributors, grocers, farmers markets, online sales, restaurants, institutional cafeterias, and schools. Um, Then you have food assistance organizations and food banks. Uh, Other stakeholders in the food system include regulators, local, state, and federal, uh, such as the Spokane Regional Health District, Washington State Department of Agriculture, Washington State Department of Health, USDA, and the FDA. Um, of course, uh, stakeholders in the food system include policymakers, city, count, county, state, and local, uh, state and federal. Um, the education uh, institutions are part of the uh, stakeholder uh, community because you have people educating producers about how to grow, and you also have organizations and agencies that educate eaters about how to grow food, how to, how to prepare food, how to shop for food. Um, examples of that, uh, WSU SNAP-Ed is a program that the Extension has for teaching folks on this in in the SNAP program about food, cooking, and so forth. Um, Second Harvest is a, is a big food assistance organization in town, and it has programs for teaching people how to cook and how to prepare food and how to, how to um, provide adequate nutrition to their families. And, you know, and then finally, we've got waste handling. So food waste is a big issue nationwide or worldwide. There's much too much food being wasted much of that could actually be eaten by food insecure folks or anybody who's, you know, it doesn't have to be thrown away. It could be reused. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And there's also the issue of, you know, um, how to divert food waste, maybe not incinerate it or landfill it, but get it recycled back into soil through through composting programs. So I think that's a kind of a fairly complete (laughs) list of stakeholders in the food system. Lots of moving pieces. And so with all of those different stakeholders and I'm going to say different audience members, um, is there a certain one of those audiences that the Spokane Food Policy Council really tries to target with their outreach or their resources, or is it really just a broad, you know, trying to just get everybody to the table? Um, the Food Policy Council um, is really works primarily on developing and advocating for policy changes. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, our main audiences are oftentimes city council, county commissioners, um, state legislators, uh, Congress people. Um, but we also have to make sure that we are getting our information f- about where... what where we get our information for developing our policies. We get that information from people who know. And so, for instance, part of what we did for the Spokane Regional Food Action Plan that we're working on was to, to, in, to survey uh, quite a few different stakeholders to get their views on uh, an assortment of issues uh, that helped us focus our policy agenda um, so we have to make sure that we that we engage with our stakeholders. They don't necessarily have to be at the table with us uh, on the council, but we have to ha- maintain communication with them so that we uh, so that they know what we're doing and we know what their needs are. Um, so we we do that uh, outreach to the stakeholders um, and and the general public. So we've. You know, we have a website, we have a Facebook page, we have a Facebook group, um, and, uh, and, and they've be, uh, been becoming more and more active over the years um, as we engage with uh, sort of the community at a grassroots level. Okay, so you're, so you're mentioning policies right now and, and how you're very influential in moving those policies uh, forward. Uh, what are some of the current um, focuses right now that the Food Policy Council is into? Well, there's a lot going on right now. And and part of it has to do with the federal government's response to the COVID pandemic, um, where it is starting to ramp up the amount of money that's going to the food system through USDA farm assistance programs, uh, through money made available to purchase food from farmers and and redirect that food to the um, food assistance organizations for distribution. Um, and so, uh, and some of that, for instance, currently, the city and the county are both developing uh, plans for how to spend. Uh, uh, like a couple of hundred million dollars that's come into that's coming into the Spokane County and city uh, from the American Rescue Plan Act um, funds, and 
the Food Policy Council is developing proposals for spending some of that money on food system projects. Um, but we have to, again, we're, we, um, you know, there's many, many th- different things that, that f- those funds could be used for, housing, rental assistance, business support, um, uh, making up for revenue that's been lost in the si- for the city in, in taxation and so forth. Um, and in order to make sure that food, food issues are also considered by these, you know, policymakers, the Food Policy Council has been very active in getting people to involve themselves in the city uh, input program, the, the survey that the city has put out asking people, you know, how should we spend these funds? And so we've, we were able to um, move food issues from not being existent on their list at all to number four um, in awesome. the priorities um, that have been listed so, so far. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, another another area that we that we find um, needs work is uh, is having to do with our small scale meat producers, uh, the folks that raise livestock in our region. There's really a huge bottleneck in the local producers of livestock being able to get their product to a, a USDA inspected plant for processing so that they can sell it. On the open market, um, and there are rules and regulations that are in flux right now um, to change some of those rules in order to make it easier for small-scale producers to find a market for their livestock. And the federal government is working on this uh, as a as a part of dis- decentralizing the meat industry somewhat. That um, has caused some problems in supply chain worker conditions, uh, farmer, uh, farmer contracts that haven't been very fair. Um, and so the Food Policy Council is taking input from livestock producers, um, monitoring the situation very closely, um, and, uh, and, and legislation that's being formed around uh, addressing those issues. Um, oh, let's see. Um, food... Assistance uh, is is an area that the Food Policy Council works on quite a bit um, in the food security realm, and uh, we've been working with the Second Harvest very closely um, in, in encouraging and developing methods for or policies that would support uh, more fresh produce going into the food assistance program, so that. Recipients aren't just deluged with a lot of canned food or processed food, mm-hmm. so there's 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 quite a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had no idea that y'all were tackling the whole uh, the bottleneck on meat processing. That it, is huge. It was one of the uh, items that came up most often in our survey among farmers and ranchers was that was that bottleneck is- issue. Um, another another one that's that's really dear to our heart as an organization is is the farmland preservation issue. Mm-hmm. The council, the, the Spokane Food Policy Council, is really interested in delving deeply into the city and the county comprehensive plan to see how it's possible to create a situation where where there's more emphasis on preserving the farmland that we have that we have left 
in, in our county. Um, because we, we only get farmland once. Mm -hmm. And even though there's a lot of push by developers to put in new housing developments and so forth, um, recent situations where there's been um, you know, public debate about housing development proposals have demonstrated that the, the rules that are supposed to protect farmland aren't really uh, being effective because farmland is routinely built over. Mm -hmm. Permits for building over on farmland are, are approved more often than not. Um, and this is despite language in the Comprehensive Plan and the, and the state's Growth Management Act that mandate you know, preservation of, of farmlands. Um, so the co Comprehensive Plan is, is headed for updating um, the, the comprehensive plans of the cities in the county as well as the county. And uh, the Food Policy Council is developing proposals for how to um, improve the wording of the comprehensive plan in order to protect farmland and also to create a, a planning environment in which it makes it m more possible to have viable small farms and food producing businesses in Spokane County. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, well, and since you've touched on it, um, right now, um, cause I know that you do also, um, uh, is coordinate the right word or facilitate or <laughs> convene, <laughs> convene. Thank you. Um, I know that you also convene the Spokane Farmland Preservation Working Group. So uh, just tell us a little bit more about that group sure. and those objectives and goals. Farmland preservation has been an important thing uh, that I've con concerned myself with over the years. The thing that really brought it to the fore to, to inspire me to try to gather people together into a farmland preservation working group to work on farmland preservation issues was the situation where um, a piece of beautiful farmland in South Spokane within city limits that was zoned agricultural with a certified agricultural uh, well, <clears throat> certified agricultural water right, uh, had been approved uh, or was going to be improved, approved for a 94-unit housing development. I was alerted to the, a public hearing that was uh, scheduled on that topic by another farmer um, in, in Spokane who had previously farmed in Vinegar Flats near, near where this land is located. Um, and I attended that hearing and was dismayed by the by the uh, effortlessness on the part of the developer to just simply ignore the fact that it was agriculturally zoned land that was going to be completely built over by this development. And the policies and, uh, and the zoning ordinance and so forth paved the way for the developer to get their way with that and the permit to to, to you know, basically start building that housing development was approved at, at the end of that hearing. But we, we just couldn't really let it lie there. And so my, I, I gathered a, group of, a small group of people together into a group that called itself the Spokane Farmland Preservation Working Group, and we began to study the issue uh, countywide. Well, anyway, so the Spokane Farmland Preservation Working Group took a leading role in 
of trying to develop an alternative to having that land developed uh, into a housing development. And we created a grassroots uh, campaign where we encouraged people from the community to contact their local decision makers and elected officials to see if there wasn't a way to preserve that land through a public purchase. And, um, and as a result of that, um, the, the working group helped form a, a, a different group that was made up of some conservation organizations in the, in the area, as well as a couple of staff people from the city of Spokane City Council um, to explore alternatives for this piece of land. And we called ourselves the Leitaw Environment and Agriculture, Agriculture and Fisheries Heritage Project. Mm. Um, and we, we did all kinds of research on the land and on the funding opportunities that were available to preserve the land or to purchase it publicly. And this went on for a year or more. Um, but we were not able to to get together a public purchasing option in the time frame that was required because the, develop, the developers of the land wanted to sell it to a developer who was actually going to follow through with the development project. And they wanted to sell it as soon as possible because they had spent years already trying to engage the um, decision makers in a public purchase and that hadn't panned out. And so what finally ended up happening with the LEAF organization um, was that uh, that we introduced the land to the Coeur d'Alene tribe um, and they just recently bought it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and their plans for it are to preserve the open space, to use it as a place to showcase um, uh, history and culture around native fishing industry and um, fisheries, um, to perhaps uh, uh, even install a small uh, fish hatchery there for demonstration purposes, to have uh, community educational programs on the land, uh, you know, and, and have it managed by the by the Coeur d'Alene tribe. And so that was a win. That's right? a huge win. It was a great win. A really it was, great win. It preserved that land. It's not going to be built over now. And Leaf and the Coeur d'Alene tribe are developing a really a wonderful working relationship to engage the community in visioning how that project will unfold. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Spokane Farmland Preservation Working Group has also weighed in on a couple of other issues. There was a development that was uh, that had been that ha- has been approved to pave over 80 acres of. It's not zoned agricultural land, but it is ex- excellent farming soil, which was a former golf course north north west of Spokane in the urban growth area. The city said that that was a piece of it, the city in their comprehensive plan said that that was open space, but the county said it was not open space, and so there was a kind of a disconnect, even though that area was supposed to be jointly managed by both the city and the county. It seemed as though, since it was the county's land, they were able to approve the housing development to go in on that land. The neighbors, a neighborhood association, was opposed to it because of the loss of the open space and the additional traffic on the already congested roads. Um, 
and we uh, we worked with the neighborhood organization and and testified at public hearings and so forth. But again, the the push to develop is very strong, and we were not able to prevent uh, that development from going in. Um, and since then, a beautiful stand of ponderosa pines has been cut down on that land. And it's just bare, and 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 I haven't had this confirmed. But I understand that the that the developing company that had won the permit has now backed out of the project. Um, and uh, so it sort of, again, leaves in limbo what's going to happen with that that open space in northwest of Spokane. Mm, um, you know, and there was another issue in, in Airway Heights where um, there was a proposal to swap some land um, uh, zoning designations um, and it would take some farmland out of the uh, eventually would take the farmland out of the agricultural zone and put it into housing Um, and we we voiced our opposition to that too as a working group and um, and are going to be working with the food policy council uh, probably with future wise which is a statewide land use uh, management advocacy organization and the Spokane uh, neighborhood Spokane County Neighborhood Alliance on developing new uh, new proposals for comprehensive plans that would do a better job of, of preserving farmland if someone wanted to get involved in all that would they just uh, lend their voice to you how would they go about talking to these uh, developers or letting them know that hey you know, we need our arable land. We want to keep it. What what can they do? Well, the the Spokane Farmland Preservation Working Group is a loose organization that um, that has moments of uh, clarity and activity, and other times of relative um, ca- uh, calmness and inactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have a website, and that's SpokaneFarmland.org. Um, and you can contact us through there. You can get on our mailing list. Um, and uh, we have meetings uh, every first Thursday of the month from 3 in the afternoon on till maybe a couple hours of meeting via Zoom. And, um, and if you contact us, we'll provide you with the Zoom link to join in on our first Thursday of the month meetings at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and then uh, sometimes, you know, for instance, what, what we've done in the past is we have quite a large mailing list and we were able to uh, activate a lot of people in the community to uh, respond to uh, form letters and uh, petitions that we had created uh, to influence policymakers. Um, we don't have uh, one that's currently active, but when issues arise, we, we develop our, our, our asks, our policy uh, directions, and we s- disseminate that to our, our grassroots supporters, and they then take up the reins and contact their decision makers, and maybe, maybe we get some change made. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of want to talk again just a little bit about the transition, because um, like we said, you know, 
years ago, there weren't farmer's markets. And now we are seeing just such an uptick of growing your own local food and people wanting to, you know, have small farms and um, want this land. And now there's such a focus on development here in Spokane. I mean, it's just crazy. I, I mean, you drive down one road one week and the next week, it's almost like there's an, a huge apartment complex there. Um, and so I'm curious if you happen to know any statistics at like what rate we are losing farmland here in Spokane County. And I'm also curious to know if, um, what your thoughts are on us, on maybe people not investing in so much farmland because of a lack of education or a lack of resources for becoming a small farm. Right. Yes, it is extremely expensive to to start a new farm if you're a young person um, uh, or uh, any anyone who, who's who's thinking of you know trying their hand at, at agriculture as a career uh, it's not an easy industry to enter primarily because of the land costs um, it, land access, the high cost of land has been identified over and over again in surveys, especially of young uh, up-and-coming farmers, as the biggest barrier to them being able to achieve any, any kind of viability is, is, is trying to find land that's affordable. And so um, there are no real easy answers to that, because we live in a society that's based on private property. And and we have to respect that, and uh, we can't really tell owners what they can and can't do with their land. But we can uh, we can educate uh, the 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 general population in terms of the importance of farmland, how how important it is to have that resource available now and in the future, so that you know we could develop hand in hand policies that protect it more. Um, there are there are ways of uh, doing it. For instance, um, you know, Conservation Futures is a fund that purchases land. Um, that comes the funding comes from the property taxes in Spokane County, and uh, it, I'd like to see Conservation Futures perhaps in the future uh, purchase some farmland and and develop it as working farmland, not just to take it out of production and make it you know, a park or place where trails are, but to keep a farm in production using regenerative agriculture practices. Um, you know, the, the county or the city could, could actually become, you know, uh, owners of, uh, of land to make it available to farmers to grow. Um, there's other ways as well the community sometimes can get together and raise funds to purchase the development rights on farmland. Um, it's a very expensive um, and legally fraught uh, process to, to do that, but it is, it is one avenue when you, when you can perhaps convince a, a farmland owner uh, to, to take a, a certain payment in order to to remove the development rights from that land to keep it as farmland in perpetuity. Um, uh, those are things we'd like to see happen in the, in the county. But uh, uh, the other, the other issue is uh, farm transition when 
uh, farmers get older, uh, are they going to just simply sell their farm to pay for their end-of-life medical expenses, or are they going to try to transition the farm to uh, a new generation of farmers? Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some programs. uh, We need to develop better programs in the state of Washington to help farmers transition like that, to help to match up up up-and-coming farmers with farmers that are retiring or aging out. Um, That was one of the recommendations of the American Farmland Trust when they did a survey in 2020 of of all the state's um, farmland preservation policies. They said that Washington State would be better served if we had a state-funded farm link program that links up-and-coming farmers with with transitioning farmers. In terms of statistics about you know where we are in terms of farmland loss in Spokane County, I do have some statistics. Um, farmland in Spokane County has decreased uh, from seventy-two percent of total land mass in 1950 to forty-seven percent today. Uh, in other words, of all the land in Spokane County. It used to be that 72% of it was farmland, and now only 47% is farmland since wow. 1950. Um, the USDA does, uh, periodically it does its agriculture census, USDA census of agriculture, and the most recent data I believe that's available is from the 2017 census, and according to that USDA 2017 data, Spokane County had 548,535 acres of farmland. Years between 2012 and 2017 saw an increase in the number of local farmers markets and continued uh, promotion of locally produced foods by some grocery outlets in the region, which we already talked about. Um, But we're still losing farms. Um, So the loss of small to medium Size farms in Spokane County between 2012 and 2017. Spokane, this is between two USDA census. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, between 2012 and 2017, Spokane lost 13 farms that were 10 to 49 acres, 32 farms that were between 50 and 69 acres, and 19 farms that were between 70 and 99 acres. So That's just farms that have gone out of business. In 2020, as I said, the American Farmland Trust published a significant report called Farms Under Threat um, that studied farmland preservation policies and conditions in all 50 states. In its research, uh, American Farmland Trust found that between 2001 and 2016, Spokane County lost 5,700 acres of agricultural land to urban high-density development and lost 4,500 acres of agricultural land to low-density residential development. Wow. So, um, like I said, once you lose farmland, it's gone forever. You can't really remove a housing development years later when you've decided that you need 
to grow more food <laughs> in your region. That's really hard to do. So, um, so somehow we have to be able to create a values-based approach to land use that honors farmland and places it in kind of a different category mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of whether it can or can't be uh, forever permanently you know, taken out of, farmland, of, of production or, or have its capacity to be a productive farm uh, destroyed from, by development. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are some pretty staggering statistics. I mean, we are losing land at a very rapid rate. And, um, you know, I just have this vision of my, in my mind of, you know, food is not, does not come from the Willy Wonka chocolate factory. <laughs> that is not what we want. You know, food needs to be grown in soil and be grown with, you know, loving hands and knowledgeable hands. And, um, so if you could, wave your magic wand and have something immediately changed, whether it be a policy or you obtained a resource or um, what would that be? Wow. That's a big question. And, and I'm not sure if it's just one single thing or a constellation of, mm-hmm. of other things. Um, well, personally, I would just like to see it much more difficult for a piece of arable land uh, that's either currently being farmed or was historically farmed and has the potential to be farmed again, I'd like to see that land protected through policies as well as, um, as I said, a a values-based approach where landowners do not just see their land as a private source for financial speculation, mm-hmm. but as, um, as arable land, as in some ways a community resource um, where the, the community as a whole is stronger and, and benefits from the presence of arable land in its, in, in its, in its, uh, within its borders um, so that we just don't see the hemorrhaging of farmland that we're seeing now with, with the development pressures. And we're going to see more development pressures because we're facing climate change, and I believe that there's going to be an influx of folks coming to our region from areas where life becomes too difficult uh, under the conditions of climate change. And so it's just really urgent and behooves us to focus on how to balance the needs of housing development with the needs of preserving our resource base when it comes to the ability to produce food in in the region. Uh, I I guess I don't have a magic bullet (laughs) answer to to that question. but like I said, it's a combination of things. It's a combination of, well, first we have to learn more about our local food system. We really haven't had a comprehensive economic study of the impact of local food production on the local economy. We, mm-hmm. we, um, I think there's some movement uh, to, 
to try to alleviate that. It's one of the things we think that ARPA funds might be well used for would be to fund such an economic study, discover what the impact is nowadays and what the potential impact to the local economy would be um, in the future uh, if if the local food economy was allowed to grow. Because um, I think it, it, we all eat. Um, we spend a large percentage of our income on food. If we can divert some of those food dollars uh, from leaving our region and going to food conglomerates somewhere else in the country or around the world, and we can retain those dollars in our local economy from local food production. You know, some some communities are blessed with petroleum under right under their feet, <laughs> and they can pump dollars out of the ground. Um, uh, that hasn't really panned out all that well, but having soil from which you grow food is another way of having dollars come out of the ground. And it's, and it's um, one of the most resilient, most resilient ways of improving a local economy is to improve its food economy. And that, in, it, in turn, lifts a lot of boats because, because it provides jobs, it, it actually improves the overall health, public health of a community to eat fresher, nutrient-dense foods, and it takes the burden off of public health system to, to, to pay for health issues that are related to diet problems. Yeah, I mean, That's the list right goes there. on and on. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about maybe with the developers having this land and, and you know, they want to make their dollars, so they're going to sell it off and everything – some sort of policy that requires them, no matter uh, X amount of acres, you have to have a community garden right in the center. What do you think of policies like that? Something to encourage, but yet still allow them to have um, the ability to sell and do whatever. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting suggestion. I, I like that. Um, uh, in, encouraging developers to honor uh, uh arable land within their developments is one thing. There are there are some developments that are going in these days that are actually called agri-hoods. It's a, it's a planned housing development built around a, a common farm, like a community okay. farm that, that is part of the community and built, uh, uh, planned and designed right into the to the development from the start. And that sort of model, the community comes in and works the farm, or is that still the farm itself works it and then sells to the community? It, it's, it, I, I'm sure there's different ways of putting it together. Gotcha. Um, okay. uh, you know, uh, just an example of one that, that wasn't really designed uh, intentionally uh, is a farm in Santa Barbara, California, which um, I can... Uh, Never remember his name. Um, God, I can't remember his name. You guys should look it up or something. But um, we'll post it. We'll uh, it. <laughs> so he was a photographer. The farmer is also a photographer, and he produced these uh, beautiful coffee table books of his farm. But the thing about his farm that was unique was that it was very close to downtown Santa Barbara, which is a pretty populous place, and and it grew 
from the 50s, all the housing developments went in and surrounded this little farm. They, didn't, they decided not to sell to developers. They wanted to maintain their farm. And they, there's a series of aerial photographs in one of these coffee table books that shows the encroachment of the housing developments around this person's farm over the years. But now the community loves that farm, and they are so happy that it wasn't paved over with another development because, they, because the farm has events on weekends and you know, it provides incredible food. Some of the folks from the community get to work on the farm. Um, and that kind of thing can happen. It used to be the way all human settlements were designed. We, we were almost all of us involved in food production in the past, and now it, um, uh, we've gone completely too far the other way where you know, now we're talking about having fully automated dairy farms where the people never touch the cows. And, um, you know, you have uh, 200,000 cows in one, in one barn. Um, that's, that's not a healthy food system. It's not going to produce healthy food. It's not going to uh, be very kind on the environment. It's not going to produce uh, very high-quality jobs for the people that work there. Um, so... We, we do need to wake up and move the needle back to where we just do more of our own food production uh, in our local regions and develop uh, a future where that's a part of our society, not something that we sort of let other people do. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Those are some great points that we're covering here. So, Chris, I also um, want to give you the opportunity to talk about another great resource um, that you oversee called the Inland Food Wise Online. So tell us about this resource. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Inland Food Wise Online is a basically a blog that I've put together, started it in 2017, just to try to write about issues that affect our food system um, and disseminate it to as many people in our region as I can. So right now, the mailing list for this, this is a private uh, project of my own, uh, is about 650 folks in the region. Um, And so uh, I write articles and I also monitor uh, legislative actions and policy uh, rulemaking processes and so forth. And when there's something that requires some grassroots input, some some folks to write letters to their Congress people or to the decision makers, um, I put together the action alerts and I and I send them out to that, you know, those six hundred and some odd folks. And um, and we we can move the needle that way if mm-hmm. we keep if we keep it up. So it's a it's a it's a website um, and it and the it is um, inlandfoodwise.online. That's how you get there. It's a funny little um, extension there, dot .online, but that's what it is. And you can go there and read articles um, and subscribe uh, in order to get uh, alerts in your, in your email inbox. Awesome. So, and, and the purpose behind the Inland Foodwise online journal is to promote regenerative agriculture and um, and people-centered food policies 
um, including uh, a concept which is gaining popularity around the world and, and locally, this concept of food sovereignty, which is, uh, which is where people take back uh, more control over how their food is produced and, and how they choose to exchange food amongst themselves, uh, take it all back from the industrial food system and, and, um, uh, and take control, uh, take back control of food, um, food production and consumption. Uh, and, you know, we can see that the UN just concluded a World Food Summit uh, years ago, at another food summit, there was an organization, uh, La Via Campesina, which coined the term food sovereignty, and they they use it uh, to organize uh, food workers, food system workers, um, and peasants all over the world, um, because many third world countries are really badly impacted by uh, by multinational agribusiness that comes into their countries and disrupts their local food systems and, and sort of replaces local food systems with, with a corporate export-oriented uh, food system that doesn't serve the local populations very well. And we have similar problems in the United States. We're not a third-world country, but we have enormous income inequality, and um, it creates situations where you know, the power differential is very great between people with means and people without means. Um, and, <clears throat> for instance, in Maine, um, there's quite a food sovereignty movement, uh, and they are having uh, municipalities opt into a system where the municipality, instead of the state, uh, develops the food safety and, uh, and food-related regulations that food producers in those municipalities uh, need to follow. And they also, also will be voting in November on a constitutional amendment to the Maine state constitution um, that would guarantee the, the right of, of citizens of Maine to food, the right to food, which I could go on and on and on about food sovereignty, but... Um, it's, it's a concept, I think, that's, that's coming to the fore. And just locally, uh, I've had the great pleasure of being invited to uh, a project that's being put on by the Spokane Tribal Network. It's the Spokane Tribal Food Sovereignty Project in Little Falls, Washington, where they have about a 20-acre farm, and they're putting in gardens, and they're also um, tending the wild native plants and uh, food and medicine plants that grow there, and you're going to be establishing more of those. I also have had the pleasure to be invited to work alongside Dan Nanamkin in Nespelum, uh, who is a Native American activist uh, of the Okanagan tribe, and he has a project in Nespelum that he calls the Young Warrior Society uh, for Food Sovereignty, and is putting in a garden and teaches classes on food prep, prep, preparation, preservation, uh, growing. Uh, and it's really important that we recognize the, the right of our indigenous communities to, um, to establish their own food sovereignty. Many of their problems 
arose from the fact that settlers disrupted the indigenous food system so so much, and many health problems on the uh, on Native American reservations are a result of uh, of losing access to their traditional food sources mm-hmm. right. and eating foods that their culture was not used to, uh, their biologies were not used to, creating is- issues of obesity and diabetes, etc. Um, and now there's a, uh, a strong movement to reinvigorate indigenous food systems and to relearn the traditions of, uh, of food of food gathering um, uh, and, and medicinal uh, herb use and so forth among Native communities, and it's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, you have just been a wealth of knowledge and information on this episode, and, um, I mean, we covered uh, quite a bit of ground between the Spokane Food Policy Council, the Inland Foodwise online platform, and the Spokane Farmland Preservation. So um, I have a feeling our listeners are wanting to move that needle, wanting to help lend their voice, wanting to help get involved and possibly become a member of some of these groups. And um, what is the best way for them to get involved or get in contact? Sure. Um, Well, if you want to learn more about the Spokane Food Policy Council, you can visit our website, spokanefoodpolicy.org. Um, also, as I said, there's also there, there's a, an application that you could fill out to become a member of the Spokane Food Policy Council. Um, we are actively seeking folks that have the energy and time to devote. It's a, very, it's a working board, all volunteer, um, and we have our hands full. We could use help. Um, if you want to learn more about the Spokane Farmland Preservation Working Group, just simply visit our website at spokanefarmland.org. Um, and if you want to learn about the Inland Foodwise online, again, the website is inlandfoodwise.online. Um, and you can use the contact form on that website to contact me directly if you have any questions. Um, and uh, I, I'm eager to talk with anyone in our region who has uh, interest in the food system, no matter what sector you're from, producer, distributor, uh, processor, rancher, uh, community gardener, it doesn't matter. We're all in this together. And if we can create a unified voice, uh, we can create change. Thank you, Chris. All right. So kind of switching gears on you. So at the end of our episodes, <laughs> we oh, yeah. always like to play I a little about this. <laughs> <laughs> a little spitfire round with you just so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, ready for it? <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, let me start you off with what what was your favorite thing to grow or something that was always a staple in like your farm or garden? Hmm. Favorite thing to grow. Onions. 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 Onions are such a challenge. They, they take a long time to get started from seed and they take a lot of patience because they're such slow growers, but they can 
produce such beautiful vegetables at the end, and they're so good. I mean, I eat onions with everything, so... <laughs> If I get a decent onion crop, that makes me a happy camper. Yeah, I love my onions too. Onions and garlic <laughs> all the way. <laughs> I can't grow garlic where I am right now. The gophers oh. eat it up. Oh, really? Good gophers eat it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, they won't touch the elephant garlic that I'm growing, though. Oh. So. <laughs> I don't know. And of course, nobody really likes elephant garlic anyway. Oh, it's good. It's good. I shouldn't diss it, but yeah. it's not as popular as regular garlic. <laughs> All right, let's see here. First, I got to say, uh, chestnut red, probably one of the greatest garlics I've had. It just has that potent flavor. So, yeah, is, I'm on, I'm on that side. Is it a hard neck? It is a hard neck, yeah. So then you get your scapes, too, and it's wonderful. Um, what's something that you've tried that you'll just never, ever try again? Oh, boy. <clears throat> I don't know. I think that, you know, when you're farming, you try things, and they may not work out, but you learn from them despite the fact that they didn't work out. And so you may, you may incorporate uh, the same thing in, in your future efforts, but you have learned some of the pitfalls. So maybe you didn't give it up altogether, but you learned how to work around the problems so uh, I really can't answer that question. I don't know. You know, I got to jump in and say that that's awesome. That is a true <laughs> farmer's mentality right there. You know what? Next season, let's do it again. I like that. Yes. Just get back on that horse and maybe try something a little different. Um, okay. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would you choose? Well, I've already met Vandana Shiva. So oh. uh, that's already happened. And um, for those who may not know, who is... Vandana Shiva is an Indian from India, uh, agriculture ad, ad, advocate who has very strong and passionate views about how to fix the food system, which are applicable globally, not just to India, her home. Her home. You know, I, I would love to sit down with Rudolf Steiner, who was the originator of the biodynamic farming method, because I'd, I'd really be curious to ask him, where did he get some of his crazy ideas for agriculture, such as burying cow horns full of cow manure in the ground for a certain amount of time and then using stuff that comes out of those cow horns to make your next batch of compost? I'd be kind of curious if he had picked up some of these tips from, from farmers in Germany where he was um, that had been using these techniques for years. You know, I'm curious about that. Other people say he just was a metaphysician and was able to travel to different places in his mind or in the universe and 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 picked up some of this knowledge um, just on the basis of, you know, telepathy or something. Uh-huh. Um, but I have a feeling it was more practical than that, and I'd love to sit down and talk with him about how that all started um, you know, there, there are people who have pioneered uh, organic agriculture. Um, Robert Rodale is one of them. In the 40s, he started publishing the Organic Gardening magazine, but also he published a magazine called Prevention, which was such a beautiful marriage because we all now know that if you eat good, clean, organic, high, nutritionally dense foods, 
you're going to have better health. You're going to prevent a lot of health problems mm-hmm. from arising in the first place. And so his second magazine, Prevention, was just along those lines. And we don't have enough emphasis on prevention in our medical system in this country. We, we go mostly to treatment of disease instead of prevention. And so Robert Rodale would be somebody I'd like to sit down and talk to as well. He's, the Rodale family um, put together the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania where they do some of the really amazing cutting-edge um, research uh, and development of organic farming techniques. For instance, organic no-till mm-hmm. on, a, on a broad scale, in other words, for, for large-scale farms. How, how can you do a no-till farming operation without the use of chemicals? Because as we know... Conventional farmers, when they talk about no-till, they're talking about spraying a lot of herbicides on the ground to kill the, the things that are growing and then planting into the dead vegetation, uh, whereas those chemicals aren't allowed in organic. But no-till is a great way, or reduced till, significantly reduced till, is a great way to build soil structure um, and sequester carbon and increase um, yields, um, conserve water, mm-hmm. all kinds of things that no-till does. Just some really good answers. I really love some of the implements that they've actually come up with, such as uh, I saw one of these tractors going, and it's got a 40-foot boom, and it's literally flame-weeding in between the rows of the crops mm-hmm. and just shields the crop and then shoots this huge flame down, burns away all the weeds, no pesticides needed, or no herbicides needed. That's cool. A little fossil fuel dependent, but... But still, it's, it's, it's in the right direction, right? I mean, it it's is. amazing. It is. All right, and then one that we always ask our guests, Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Well, that's a tough one, <laughs> but I'll have to say Beatles. Man, Beatles are on a stretch uh, a roll, this time. Huh? They yeah. are on a roll this time. I think they finally took it. <laughs> this well, season, I, they are taking it. <laughs> well, I remember singing Beatles songs to myself as I walked down the mile driveway to the bus stop when I was, you know, five years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, so they've, uh, been, they've been part of my life for that long. I love the Beatles. My dad introduced me to them, so I have a soft spot for the Beatles in my nice. heart for sure. Well, thank you again, Chris, for spending the time with us today and talking to us about the Spokane Food Policy Council, the Farmland Preservation Group, and your Inland Food Wise online. Um, We'll make sure and link all of those in the episode on our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us at Rocks to Roots. And don't forget, you can listen to all of these episodes for free on all major podcast platforms or directly on our website, rocks to roots.org slash listen. Thanks for being here, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Rocks to Roots is sponsored by the Office of Farmland Preservation. Office of Farmland Preservation is a program within the Washington State Conservation Commission that works to address the rapid loss of working farm and forest lands in our state. Together, the Washington State Conservation Commission and conservation districts provide voluntary, incentive-based programs that empower private landowners to implement conservation on their property. You can learn more about their programs and services by visiting their website, scc.wa.gov.